COPcast, 12 Days of COP. I'm presenter and journalist Peg Alexander, and in partnership with academic think tank, the Green Economics Institute, each day during COP26 in Glasgow, I'm having chats with people from around the world, looking at the big topics we need to get a grip of if we're to hit the Paris Agreement. We're going to cover a broad range of subjects. The chats are going to be short, informal, and hopefully inspiring and informative. And you never know, we might even manage some laughs along the way. I started working and campaigning on climate issues in 1989. Gosh, such a long time ago. Now the world has woken up to the fact that we don't have any time left. But are world leaders ready to accept that it's no more business as usual? sitting outside at COP. The sun is kind of shining. We've found a bench outside where we can take off our masks. I'm really pleased that I'm here with Jean Lambert. Jean, of course, was a Green MEP in the European Parliament. I was trying to think, Jean, how many years you were in the European Parliament? Was it, was it 30? 20. 20. 20. 20. 20 years, yeah, four terms. You did your stint. I, th- I think we can we can say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, I was going to stand down in uh, yeah 2019 anyway, but then the the government sort of took the option away really for anybody else. So, so you had to go. Yeah. So you had to go. Uh, we're going to talk about the kind of social justice elements of what's going on in terms of these discussions. And um, so far in all the podcasts, pretty much everybody has mentioned this, uh, but we're going to talk in about in a bit more detail because what is so clear to anyone who's following anything that's going on at COP is we can't hit 1.5 degrees unless we do something about supporting particularly the global south to be able to meet it. And also that social justice has to go hand in hand with the climate justice, doesn't it? Absolutely. But that you know because if you don't do that what you you get amongst other things is a resistance to change because people are already nervous about their future and climate change becomes another big threat to to jobs to security to you know to how you feed your family so there's that element to it and then people resist because they don't see that there is a real opportunity there and also, if you don't do something about this in a way which really works with, with the justice element, you, you know, we know that one of the things about climate um, change, climate disaster that we have, is that the problem, it makes the problems you already have even worse. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, the enormous and obscene inequalities that we are seeing in our own societies and between countries um, at, at the moment, you, you, you know, is part of the problem that, that we have. What about this $100 billion, right? Because, I mean, from the old perspective, and you, you were involved in so many different aspects of, of the European Parliament and the EU and leading all sorts of initiatives, I know, as an MEP. Can you explain to us what has happened with this $100 billion that now everyone's saying might still take another two, three years to get out. Is this just that governments are not putting their hand in the pockets and coughing up? Or is this just tied up in legalese at an international level that just makes it really difficult to actually do things at international level? I think it's mixed, but the the main problem is that governments are not delivering on the promises that they've made. And even the promises that were made were not big enough. 
Right. And, uh, you know, so it's one of those things that everybody can agree on a total. Mm. What they then have problems with is who's paying what within this. Right. So, you, you know, so it, it's that element and then it becomes slow and what are the funds and, that, you know, how are you going to spend it? What are, what are the criteria? But the key thing is that the money hasn't appeared and that it hasn't appeared on a regular basis because it also wasn't meant to be a one-off. Right. This was meant to be, as it were, an annual investment. So where does the fault lie for it then? I think it's mixed. Part of it is that, you know, the, within the agreements themselves, the, the, you know, where the real teeth. In, yeah. in the, and, and of course, it's something that, you know, you also saw a bit within the European Union that nobody really wanted be, to be the, the one that got tough because they didn't particularly want people to be tough with them on other sort of, okay. you, you know, so therefore yeah. you, you don't upset each other too much. But, you know, there are countries that have paid up. There are countries that have paid something, um, you, you know. And I think one of the things that a lot of people have now come to realise with the COVID crisis is that when you look at the way in which so many governments decided to do things that they had told you were impossible mm. because... No, I they, they, they just went ahead and did it in yeah, weeks. Yeah, yeah, the money yeah. is there. Whatever money it takes, there. in the words of the British Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, you know, whatever it takes. Thanks. But you also then notice that, well, that was for the UK. Yeah. The COVID, we're still not seeing it on vaccine yeah. solidarity. And, well, we've done it for COVID. Mm, can we really do it again for climate? So, yeah. I know. heard the uh, ex-president, I think it was Barb Buder, I think, chatting, which was really interesting, talking about this 100 billion and was saying, actually, they are paying so much out to the IMF and the World Bank in debt repayments that actually what they would like is a restructure of the debt payments so that they are not paying so much money in the debt payments. Stop the wrangling over the 100 billion. Just let us keep that money and we can spend that on essential stuff that they need to do straight away. Um, And the irony being that the money that they took they based it on um they used it for infrastructure building and they based it on the best scientific advice at that time and what they needed to do to make things climate safe and now just a few years later they have passed that mark so actually the infrastructure they've built is pretty much redundant now because the climate's got so much worse than they expected and yet we're getting millions and millions of dollars all the time from this country that is a small island state in debt repayments. Well, I've heard this as well, you know, from Sheikh Hasina, who's the um, Prime Minister of Bangladesh, of course, one of the most climate-affected countries as well, saying, again, well, you, you know, if we're not going to get the money through Climate Fund and through other things, then we should stop repaying our yeah. debts. Because, you, you know, the money is needed. Everybody agrees the money is needed. Um, it's just that it doesn't turn up. Yeah. as and when it is needed so you know in, in my view I think I can see the attraction on the debt side of it but you know I would really want to read the small prints don't don't let the Sansos get away with the idea certain governments get away with the idea that oh well this also absolves you from all of your historic yeah. responsibilities yeah. and you're not going to have to pay out money yeah. anymore you, you know I still want to see the money there yeah, because yeah, yeah, apart yeah. from anything else, it's owed for the years it was promised and never turned and up. up. And of so course, what we, can't debt, forget, you know? what we can't forget is that the, the, the countries that are supposed to be paying this money, 
are the countries that are responsible mainly, predominantly, for the situation that we're in. This, this is not about the goodness of their hearts and some kind it's of great charity. benevolent charity. No, it's not. It's actually, sorry, I'm getting really worked up now, <laughs> but it, it is actually about us in the rich countries in the global north paying for the damage that we've done. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, if you look historically at where the emissions have been coming from over the years and the build-up, you know, it's clear where the responsibilities lie. Yeah. So if we're looking at debt, if we're looking at reparation, then, my God, you, you know, be grateful people are only saying 100 billion because yeah. it, it's going to need more than that and it needs to be fast. And don't link it to good trade deals. Yep. Don't link it to, you, you know, sort of what's good for British business to then go and invest in places that we've already sort of taken so much out of. You, you know, it has to be on the terms for those countries sorting out what it is they need, um, you, you, you know, and to get away from yep. this idea that that's somehow this is still going to be good. Yeah, yeah. It might be good for British business. Who knows? But only if the countries that need the technology yeah. or whatever think it's exactly what they want. You've worked yeah. in, you've worked across and done actives like we we, we would just been chatting about elections that you've overseen in various countries around the world. Kind of just going back to where we started that question of justice. You I mean your heart must just break when you see what's what's really happening? What what? What the so many multifaceted impacts of climate change are on those countries. I mean, we were just talking as well about what happens to young men, about jobs opportunities, about what that means in terms of conflict and war. You know, you must you must really be able to see and connect all those dots. Yeah, but I mean, one of the the things that I did when I was in the Parliament was I chaired the delegation for the Parliament with relations for some of the countries of South Asia, and those included. You know, countries where everybody understands that they are climate vulnerable, like Bangladesh, yeah. Maldives, yeah. you know, which really risks disappearing. So, yeah. you know, what do you do when it's not just about what do you do with your population if your country no longer exists? It's what do, what do you do with your, your history, your, your place in the world? Yeah. Yeah. But also, you know, countries like Nepal and Bhutan, right up in the in the Himalayas, where you know they are seeing glacier retreat. Yeah. They are seeing you know all all of that going on and knowing what the vulnerabilities are. Where if you're in the part of the, you know, up in the Himalayas, where it takes 30 years for a bush to grow to one metre high, you, you know the idea that sort of you you can turn things around really fast for some mm. places. If, if you get an outbreak of glassy waters or whatever from the, the, the lakes, it's devastating, yeah. absolutely devastating. And such a huge challenge for governments, many of whom are, are you know, quite fragile governments in a sense, you, you know, that maybe have come through conflict in, in order to even sort of create their country or, or whatever. So it's a huge challenge mm. for governance um, within this. And then you look at other parts we look at uh, you know Afghanistan at the moment um, now with this prolonged drought yeah oh I mean it's just it's just <laughs> awful and the stories of the food and the hunger that's coming out absolutely. of Afghanistan at the moment is just and there are so many countries in the world which have had prolonged droughts yeah and you, you know that if you're the government 
you can maybe cope with you, you know a certain a certain period of time but if you're a government in a fragile economy fragile country you know that there are already underlying tensions how do you then factor in how you how you manage yeah what it's going to mean for, what it means for people on the land who no longer can earn a living yeah. from it and who therefore are moving yeah, yeah. and all of the, the tensions that there are of people moving into new areas you know with people who also feel vulnerable so you, you know this underlying sort of rumbling and increasing in tension mm. increasing in sort of different sorts of conflicts yeah. I, I mean it's, yeah. it's dramatic it's dramatic we've, we've, we've actually gone over the time i've let it run because i just want to i just want to keep talking about about this thing but what one last question to you then i mean because i know that i mean you were in the european parliament 20 years you've been involved in the green party for um, <laughs> longer a, a, a lot longer <laughs> before that and so obviously I think you're probably going to give me quite a political answer to this question possibly or whatever but um, my feeling is I'm not sure uh, a lot of the time this is partly for this part the, 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 the aim of this podcast I'm not sure people have really understood what no more business as usual means in terms of hitting 1.5 degrees and, and, and keeping warming to that I mean wh- where do you stand on the kind of doom gloom can we do it are we all doomed what do we need to do? Can the can economies change? Uh, if you could answer that in just thirty seconds, <laughs> I think, like a lot of people, you, you know that there, there, you swing. Yeah. But but on the other hand, you, you you also know that there are an increasing number of people that do want to do the right thing. That whether that's local climate activists, whether that's people in governments, in people that we meet in, in business or whatever that. Who do want to? Who want to make things work? Who yeah. want to make things happen? And who actually want to, you, you know, to do the best they can to keep to that maximum of 1.5 um, and lower. So it's it really is this thing that you know, the more you can get them working together, the you know, the more hope you can feel. Yeah. But you know, it's we're we're leaving it. Pretty yeah. damn near to the wire. Yeah, yeah. You know, in order to actually be able to feel that you've got any real chance of having some control mm-hmm. on what happens yeah. next. I'm hoping on a future uh, podcast, which will probably come out as a couple of extra days of this podcast because we're nearing the 12 days, I'm going to be talking actually to um, someone who's going to talk about that whole question of climate anxiety and what we can do on a personal level about climate anxiety. But uh, uh, Jean, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and how lovely we've had the sun shining on us. I can't believe this. In the middle of Glasgow. (laughs) Well, we're doing this. Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. Pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Peg Alexander at TV Radio Peg on social media. Tune in tomorrow. I'll be chatting to another great guest. You can also check out greeneconomicsinstitute.org.uk.